Please turn with me to Isaiah chapter 14 as we continue our study in the book of Isaiah. Last week we looked at the judgment on the nation or the civilization, I guess, of Babylon. Today we're going to have a continuation of that same theme. Before we go to his word, let's go to him and ask for his help with it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we come to your word, we ask for your help with it. We um, are completely inept and unable without your guidance, without your leading and showing us. Lord, we pray that you would lead us to faith and that you would lead us to repentance as we see your word, that it would lay our hearts bare before you and that we would be able to see our sin and repent of our sin. Lord, we also pray that you would lead us to the truth and how we ought to live as Christians and how we ought to live that we might bring glory to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I was reading through this, it made me think of the end of a Star Wars movie. You know, the Return of the Jedi, you've all seen, probably you've all seen it. If you haven't, I'm I'm sorry, I may spoil the ending a little bit. Not really. You can still watch the movie. But there's this celebration at the end, you know, because the good guy usually wins at the end of good movies. Um, And the reason they're celebrating, because this big bad guy's been defeated and the universe has been restored, or at least you think it has been. And... They're defeated in large part to the destruction of this giant space station slash moon called the Death Star, which according to canonical literature, Star Wars canon of course, housed over two and a half million people working and living on the Death Star when it exploded in the middle of space. So freedom for the good guys came at this monumental loss of life. So much death and destruction that we can't even wrap our minds around how many people that is at all. If you watch the end of the movie, there's this party happening at the end, right? And everybody's kind of hugging and people are laughing and there's music playing depending on which year you watch it. It may be different music and there's hugging and there's nice and there's all these people that were just blown up to cause that to occur. There's nothing wrong with celebrating victory, of course. Absolutely nothing wrong with doing that, especially victory over tyranny and oppression, which you see in the movie Star Wars, which we see in real life as well. It's not just a movie thing. Our own country took similar actions to end World War II, dropping bombs in Japan, which probably killed a quarter of a million people over time, but saved the lives of many, many more than that. There was celebration with that victory, even though it came at a great cost, great sacrifice. In our text today, there has a, there's a similar kind of feel to it. Although the combatants are a lot different. It's Babylon on one side and God himself on the other. There's only one possible outcome, of course, for this contest. Victory for God. Yet in his word today, we find that even though victory is certain, we find God instructing his people to sing a taunt. To Babylon. What actually is happening is the Lord has written a song that his people should sing after the oppressor is gone. A song that is kind of this proverb about Babylon 
about the evil of Babylon. When they're defeated, of course, when Babylon was defeated, it came at a great cost. Many lives would be lost, yet the people were instructed to celebrate. As we come to the text today, we have a few things to deal with, chief of which is our own sin. Let's not lose sight of that, because we should see our own sin and the arrogance and the conceit in the words that God speaks against the king of Babylon. This is not something that is removed from us, but it is something that is very near to us, our own sin. If we merely see this as a charge against an ancient king, then we might enjoy or join in with the throng that states, I want to hear something that applies to me, not about some ancient king that died a long time ago. Not seeing the fact that learning about this man's arrogance should show us our own and should point us to our need for a Savior, that Savior being Jesus Christ. We look at our text today, I want to look at it in three points. First, the song of taunting. Second, the fallen day star. And then, lastly, the vindication of the Lord. And so with that, let's look together at the text. Isaiah chapter 14, starting at verse 3 and reading through verse 23. Please stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's Word. When the Lord has given you rest from your pain and turmoil and the hard service with which you were made to serve, you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon. How the oppressor has ceased, the insolent fury ceased. The Lord has broken the staff of the wicked and the scepter of rulers that struck the peoples in wrath with unceasing blows, that ruled the nations in anger with unrelenting persecution. The whole earth is at rest and quiet. They break forth into singing. The cypresses rejoice at you, the cedars of Lebanon, saying, Since you were laid low, no woodcutter comes up against us. Sheol beneath is stirred up to meet you. When you come, it rouses the shades to greet you. All who were leaders of the earth, it raises from their thrones all who were kings of the nations. All of them will answer and say to you, you too have become as weak as we, as we. You have become like us. Your pomp is brought down to Sheol, the sound of your harps. Maggots are laid as a bed beneath you, and worms are your covers. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. Above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend from the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you were brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. Those who see you will stare at you and ponder over you. Is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the earth, who made the world like a desert, who overthrew its cities? who did not let his prisoners go home. All the kings of the nations lie in glory, each in his own tomb. But you are cast out, away from your grave, like a loathed branch, clothed with the slain, or clothed with the slain, those pierced by the sword, who go down to the stones of the pit, like a dead body trampled underfoot. You will not be joined with them in burial, because you have destroyed your land. You have slain your people. May the offspring of evildoers never more be named. Prepare slaughter for his sons. 
because of the guilt of their fathers, lest they rise and possess the earth and fill the face of the world with cities. I will rise up against them, declares the Lord of hosts. I will cut off from Babylon name and remnant, descendants and posterity, declares the Lord. And I will make it a possession of a hedgehog and pools of water, and I will be... And I will sweep it with the broom of destruction, declares the Lord of hosts. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. So just a quick background and review. Remember from last week, we ended with the first two verses of Isaiah 14. For the Lord will have compassion on Jacob and will choose again Israel. Will set them in their own land. And sojourners will join them and will attach themselves to the house of Jacob. The Lord is going to set aside a people for himself. They, they, that spoke of that plan to choose them again, despite their own sin. Why does he do this? Because he's a God that keeps promises, which is the theme of the entire Bible. God keeps his promises. When we read in the New Testament that God's promises are yea and amen in Jesus Christ, it is saying to us that Christ represents the culmination, the completion of God's promises. The fact that God has indeed kept them and will continue to keep them. That's exactly what that means. Before Jesus ascended, He left us pictures of these promises that we can have for us that we still keep to this day. Baptism is one of those. The Lord's Supper is another one that we have. These are pictures of the promise that He says to us, I will never leave you and forsake you, and we can believe that to be true. The whole Bible speaks of this idea. We, as Reformed believers... Sum it all up with the term covenant theology. What does the word covenant mean? Promise. This is about God's promises. I want to reiterate that because it may be easy to lose sight of that as we, especially as the overall theme of Scripture, as we get into some of these more difficult passages here in Isaiah. It may be easy to lose sight, but the, the theme is scattered throughout it's easy to see if we anchor our understanding of any one passage to the theme of the bible as the of a whole as a whole it keeps us grounded when we aren't grounded we go off into crazy land which is very easy to do strange and odd interpretations it's very easy to do when you read things like they will become the possession of a hedgehog man what could we do with that or the Lord using His broom of destruction. It almost sounds like a D&D weapon or something. I mean, it's what do we do? We have to be careful with the Scripture. We must stay grounded in the structure of Scripture as we come to any one text, and that obviously is what we try to do here. And so that brings us to the first point, the song of taunting. Notice the context of the song. We're given there in verses 3 and four, when the Lord has given you rest from your pain and turmoil and the hard service with which you serve, you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon. Rest from pain and turmoil and 
rest from hard service, which is what they had in Babylon. Life was not easy under Babylon, and that's for sure. You can read in other parts of the Old Testament to see that. So when the people were finally delivered, which we will look at as we go through the course of this book, they take up this song. And the song is a song of what the ESV says, a song of taunting. Your version may have something else there. We'll get into that. And it is very much like the celebrations that we talked about earlier. Yet this word taunt makes us think about something different. When you taunt somebody, it's almost like you're making fun of them in a way. The Hebrew here is a little bit different than that. It's a lot more um, full than our own word taunt. It could be used for the word as the word proverb or a famous kind of saying, you know, something that we that sticks with us because of something that happened. You you get this idea that because of what happened to the Babylonian king, now Israel has this thing that they say all the time concerning the fall of Babylon. Being made the punchline of a joke may be another way of thinking about that. Because of your historical goof up, you are kind of now made the butt of a joke for for all eternity. You know, I, I think of like even baseball. There's a famous uh, person who played on a team out east that I won't name for one of our people here, but uh, he missed a ground ball between his legs in the World Series game that cost them the series. And they now say when someone does that, that he bucknered that ball. That poor man will always live. Well, he's no, he's no longer living, but his name will always be attached to the fact that he missed an easy ground ball. Not the fact that he was actually a pretty decent player in his day. It's kind of sad. It's almost like, you know, making a meme today where some poor soul has this odd picture taken of them and now everyone on the internet uses it for a punchline. Those poor people. You get the idea. What's happening here to Babylon. They are made this meme, a taunt, a proverb. Verses 4 through 8. And you kind of get the, the, the verses here of the song. How the oppressor has ceased. The insolent fury ceased. The Lord has broken the staff of the wicked. The scepter of rulers that struck peoples in wrath with unceasing blows, with unrelenting Persecution. The earth is at rest, and then they break forth into singing. Even the trees are taunting Babylon. Hey, we don't have to worry anymore because now we know that people aren't going to come around and take us. You see the reason for the song here. The staff that had been used to strike the people is now broken. The earth is quiet, and then all of a sudden breaks out into song. Those trees that are singing, remember from earlier in this book, people... The people of God will refer to the forest that Assyria had laid low. And so now they kind of get this, they're kind of coming back at their oppressor. Their, uh, the destroyers are no longer there to take them out of the forest. The trees are singing at their oppressor in this way. Verses 9 through 11. Sheol beneath is stirred up to meet you. When you come, it rouses the shades to greet you, all who were leaders of the earth. Sheol is a Hebrew term for 
kind of the realm of the dead or for, for the grave. And so here you have this picture of all the kings of the earth that are down in the grave and they are raising up to meet the king of Babylon as he descends into the grave. They've even decided to make a bed for their new guest. A bed of maggots covered with worms. How delightful for their new guest. And notice what is brought down with him. Verse 11. Your pomp is brought down. The sound of your harps are brought down. All of these things that would be counted as kind of like symbols of arrogance of a, as a civilization, the arrogance of their rulers, they now share a bed with their king in the grave. When you think of civilizations that have gone by the wayside, who do we typically think of? We think of Rome. We think of Greece. We think of Babylon. It's not that any descendants of these civilizations are not still around. It's not like they were completely wiped off the face of the earth. However, we no longer consider them great civilizations. You might even think of some more modern ones that have fallen in the last hundred years. Hitler's Germany is a great example. The Soviet Union in my own lifetime. Seeing that happen. They aren't civilizations. Those two especially aren't really civilizations, but more so that they represent the same idea that is seen here. Once great groups with these leaders, yet they thought way too much of themselves. And they were brought down. Each of them fell for different reasons too. But all of them could be attributed to the fact that they thought that they were completely indestructible until the day that they found out that they weren't. This should be a warning to us in a number of ways. Concerning our own nation, of course, we are not indestructible. The United States will one day be in the back of an index of a book that you can look up and you come to the end of the story. That will one day happen. But we should also see this warning concerning our own lives. If we ever get to the point when we look at our own lives and we think, I think I've made it. It could be that moment that we are most vulnerable. You can name all the people that have kind of become a proverb to you. People that you have known. People that to you represent that thing that they were once high and mighty and now they are low or now they are just gone and you think I don't want to end up like that person and it could be just as simple as that it makes me think of the man in Luke 12 that we've talked about before who he looked at his possessions and he looked at all the, the food that he was bringing in and he said well I guess I'm going to have the big build bigger barns and that's what he did only to know that he would die that night and he couldn't take any of his bigger barns with him the fate of Babylon again will most likely be the fate of our own country just from reading history and know that history typically acts the same way over and over and over again we don't but we you and I don't have to end up like them let us be a people that rather than glory in ourselves, let us glory in the Lord. That will continue into our next point. 
the fallen day star. Look with me at verses 12 through 14. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God, and I will set my throne on high, and I will sit on the mount of assembly that in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds, and I will make myself like the Most High. I will make myself like the Most High. Well, let's deal with the elephant in the room first. These verses are often attributed to the fall of Satan, the devil. Your Bible may even say something to the effect of, O Lucifer, son of the dawn. So again, let's park here for a moment. Why do people see this as Satan? Well, first of all, there are several other passages in the Scriptures that people can look at and bring back to this one. Luke 10 is probably the most prominent where Jesus is uh, instructing His disciples. The disciples have gone out into the countryside to preach the Gospel. And they come back and they say, Even the demons obey us. And the first thing out of Jesus' mouth is, I saw Satan fall like lightning. Where he was probably alluding to the fall of Satan in some regard. So they're doing this whole lightning bright star thing and they're bringing it back to Isaiah 14. There's another passage in Ezekiel 28 that is probably better for that comparison in which the king of Tyre is another king that's being judged in the book of of, uh, Ezekiel and he's under judgment and similar language is being used and that is often attributed to Satan as well because it kind of harkens back to the Garden of Eden and talks about him adding jewels and the reason that he fell is because he kept wanting to he looked at his own self and his own beauty and saw that as higher than the Lord. So using this passage and others like it, some interpreters, not some many interpreters over the years have shown Isaiah to be kind of switching gears here all of a sudden and stop talking about Babylon and to then to begin talking about Satan. From the passage that we looked at last week, chapters 18 and 19 in Revelation that talk about Babylon and the fall of Babylon the Great. It might again be easy to draw that conclusion since it talks about that. And and Satan we know is also, his fall is also detailed in the book of Revelation. So it may be easy again to make those connections. So what do we need to do with this? Well, as in all biblical exegesis, we have to look at the overall message and the context. Considering that chapters 13 and 14, which we talked about 13 last week, looking at 14 this week, seem to be largely about the fall of Babylon, the deliverance of the people of God from them, it would make sense that these few verses, when they begin talking about the king of Babylon, are actually talking about the king of Babylon. It makes sense. We have to do a whole lot of other things to make this about Satan. The name Lucifer, which has been added to Satan um, by 
ever since the Old Testament was uh, translated into Latin because Lucifer is the Latin name for the planet Venus, which is probably being referred to here by the Hebrew word halal as the day star or the morning star. If you are up really early in the morning, you can actually see Venus. It's the brightest star in the sky. Really bright. Which is a pretty cool picture here. Because what is Isaiah trying to compare the king of Babylon to? That star that at one point in the day looks brighter than anything else. It is the brightest star in the early morning sky until what happens? The sun comes out and completely shrouds it in obscurity. That star might easily think itself more special than it is, which is exactly the idea that we need to see here. This isn't to dispute the idea that Satan is a fallen angel and he fell because of his pride. Not at all. It's just to say that this text is not talking about that. That said, I do want to, for you and me, for us, to compare our sin to the king of Babylon with the sin that took place in the Garden of Eden when Satan first tempted man. Verses 13 and 14 again. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. Remember Satan's lie in Genesis 3? What did he tell Eve? You will not surely die. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be just like him. Understand this, Satan knows his eventual end. Satan knows the end of the story. He's not dumb. He knows how the story ends. He knows that after he is used as the Lord's tool for a time, he is then going to be just like Assyria and Babylon and Rome and Greece before him, and he's going to be thrown into the lake of fire, and he's going to be judged for all eternity. He knows that that is his end. Knowing that, he wants nothing more than to bring others with him. And he knows the right way to do it. Absolutely. To convince the created thing that he or she is just like the creator. That is the way to do it. It's the way he's been doing it ever since Genesis. It's the way he still does it today. It's what he believes, after all. He believes that he's just like the creator. He wants others to believe it too. And it is the root of all sin, really. Pride. To say, you know what, God? And this is what we say. You know what, God? I got this all by myself. In fact, you, God, are afraid of me. You know that if I knew the truth, I'd become just like you. Turn with me to Psalm 50, please. As I believe Psalm 50 is very helpful for us to see the conclusion of those who think that God is just like us. Psalm 50, starting at verse 16. But to the wicked, God says, What right have you to recite my statutes or to take my covenant upon your lips? For you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. 
If you see a thief, you are pleased with him, and you keep company with adulterers. You give your mouth free rein for evil, and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done, and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself. But now I rebuke you, and I lay this charge before you. Mark then, mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart, and there be none to deliver. For the one who offers thanksgiving as sacrifice glorifies me. The one who order, orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. You thought that I was just like you. God says, Mark this, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart, and there be none to deliver. This doesn't sound like one who tolerates the sin of pride from man. Not that he should. In fact, we deserve to be torn to pieces for the sin of our pride. And that pride is the one that looks at God and says, You are afraid of me, God. The lie that Satan's been telling us since the beginning. And of course, we deserve to be torn to pieces. You see the end of the king of Babylon in the next few verses in Isaiah 14, 15 through 21. What happens to him? He's brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. And people look at him. He becomes this proverb. All that he has is gone. He's not even allowed to be buried with the kings. He's set off to pasture by himself. He's buried alone. It's the fate of all who point their finger of God at God and make claims to their own personal deity, which is what all of us do every time we sin. We deserve that fate. But in Christ, we don't get it. Why? Verse 23 there of Psalm 50. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. The one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. I'll save you the suspense. It is not us who ordered our ways rightly. It was Jesus. Yet even while we pointed our fingers at God, In pride and accusation, it was Jesus who was torn to pieces on our behalf. We deserve death, but Jesus got death. Jesus deserved all the reward and all the victory and all the glory, but we get it in Him. And just in case Satan would use death, the death of Jesus as a source of his own personal victory to point at and say, look, he's dead now. He never really got that chance because Jesus did not stay dead. In fact, he's risen. The days of evil and the evil one are numbered on this earth. Because of his resurrection, we are able to share in that victory over sin and death. And we will live forever and one day we'll never point our accusing finger at God again. Glory be to God. Until then, let us heed the words of the psalmist there in Psalm 50. Let us order our ways rightly. Cast down our pride and thanksgiving to God. 
The last point, the vindication of the Lord. Back to Isaiah 14, verses 22 and 23. I will rise up against them, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will cut off from Babylon name and remnant, descendants and prosperity, or posterity, declares the Lord, and I will make it the possession of a hedgehog in the pools of water, and I will sweep it with the broom of destruction, declares the Lord of hosts. I will rise up against them. If you read history, I encourage you to read the history of the civilization of Babylon, even its fall. It's very interesting. You know that the Medes and the Persians came in and they took Babylon out. And there were battles, but not a lot. It was kind of a political takeover, really. And it was a takeover of a wasted away enemy that was a vestige of its former self. However, history only tells, again, part of that story. We need, his, we need Scripture to fill in the blanks of what actually was going on here. It reminds us that during this takeover, as in any takeover and all throughout history, God is the one behind it. God is the one who's doing the thing. God is the one who rose up against Babylon, and because of that, they fell. 23 seems to finish up this taunting song with figurative language. That suggests that a hedgehog is the proud new owner of a once great civilization. It's a sad story, really, if you think about it. That they are now the possession of a hedgehog. Before you start thinking, sure, hate it for them. And I hate that for Babylon. You should look in the mirror. We're really quick to grab a hold of the unimportant things of this earth, like money and power and prestige, and say, look at this great thing that I've built for myself. The great leaders of Babylon did that too. You can read about all the great things that they did and how great that they were and all the money that they had and how that story ended. They fell. Their fall was great because their pride was great. They have become a proverb of history. What about you? Do you want to be remembered? There's only one way to guarantee that you'll be remembered forever. And that is to have your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life to find salvation in Him and Him alone. Stop taking pride in things on this earth and instead find your glory and your pride in Christ alone. In Him alone we have eternal life. In conclusion, as Christians, let us be a people that remember that God alone deserves the glory. Let us be a people who glorify Him with what we say and do and how we live so that He will be famous. Let's go to Him and pray. Father, we are thankful for your continued reminder to us that we need you. We see our own pride and arrogance in the sin of Babylon and its king. And we pray that we not look at these people and that king as an afterthought, but that we look and see ourselves and that we we repent of our sinful pride and that we grow closer to you. Lord, help us to do that. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.